This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 194th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the most powerful and influential people in the history of the music industry. He's a record producer, A&R executive, and record label chief who has been nicknamed the man with the golden ear, having discovered and developed great singers and songwriters for a half century. First as president of Columbia Records from 1967 through 1973, then as founder and president of Arista Records from 1974 through 2000, then as founder and president of the BMG Finance J Records from 2000 through 2002, then from 2002 through 2008 as chairman and CEO of RCA Music Group, then from 2008 through 2012 as chief creative officer of Sony BMG, and since 2012 as chief creative officer for all of Sony Music Entertainment. A four-time Grammy winner who received the Grammy's Trustees Award in 2000 and President's Merit Award in 2009, he became, in 2000, the first music executive ever voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the non-performers category, and in 2011, the theater at the Grammy's Museum was named in his honor. Now 85 years old, he's as busy as ever, and is the subject of Chris Perkel's acclaimed new Apple Music-distributed documentary, Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives which was inspired by his 2013 memoir, The Soundtrack of My Life. I'm talking about the legendary Clive Davis. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Brian Fogel, the director of one of the most acclaimed, gutsy, and impactful documentaries of 2017 or any year, Icarus. The film started out as a quest by Fogel, a high-level amateur bicyclist, to find out what would happen to his biking abilities if he essentially supersized himself by doping like Lance Armstrong. But in the course of exploring how to do that, he meets and becomes close friends with Grigory Rodchenkov, the head of the Russian anti-doping laboratory, and learns information that rocks the world of sports. Back in January, the film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, where it was awarded a special jury prize, the Orwell Award, and was acquired by Netflix for $5 million, which is virtually unheard of for a doc. It's streaming on the service now. It subsequently won the Critics' Choice Documentary Award for Best Sports Documentary and, out of 170 eligible documentary features, was chosen by the documentary branch of the Academy for the shortlist of 15, from which five Oscar nominees will soon be chosen. Brian Fogel, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Scott. To begin with, congratulations on making the shortlist. And I guess a lot of people will be surprised, as I was, to learn that this was actually your first foray into the world of documentary filmmaking. Maybe you can explain what preceded it and how it how it came about. Yeah, this was my first documentary, so I've been very humbled by the experience to have such an incredible story come to me and unfold while I was filming. Prior to this, I directed a feature comedy. Prior to that, I wrote and co-starred in a play called Jutopia, totally unrelated to <laughs> Icarus, but uh, it certainly was a very strong background in, in entertainment and certainly in 
how to make and construct a film. It was really a phenomenon off-Broadway, right? Yeah, it ran for three and a half years in New York, and we had productions of it running all over the country at one time. Amazing. So when along the line did you get the idea that you might want to make a documentary, and how did you pitch the original idea before all these twists and turns to find financing for it? You know, I I got the idea that I wanted to make a documentary as, for me, the creative process is one that's kind of always hard to manage unless you're the person that is able to actually navigate that. And in the format of documentary, I saw myself being able to essentially pick up a camera and go and make a film and go and follow a journey and see where and see where it led to. And I've been a fan and love documentaries, things from Man on Wire to Citizen 4 to it's just always been kind of a format that I've been drawn to. And when Lance... Armstrong came out in 2013 proclaiming that he had doped. The shocking thing to me was not that he had doped. It was that he had managed to evade 500 Mm -hmm. anti-doping controls clean. And to me, I'm thinking, is the problem with Lance Armstrong or is the problem with the system? And clearly, if this anti-doping system can't catch someone over 500 (laughs) tests in 10 years, the system in my mind was a fraud. And so the idea came to me that I would set out essentially on a personal journey to document not only the effects of of performance-enhancing drugs, but more importantly, to show that the system, in fact, didn't work and was a fraud. And so when I went out to start pitching the film and the idea to get some initial financing, it was essentially supersize me in the world of performance-enhancing drugs, but it was beyond just the supersize me element of showing what these drugs did. It was really the kind of cat and mouse element to actually expose that the anti-doping system, not in cycling, but in all of sport, was a fraud as I saw it. And so that was essentially the pitch, and I was able to get a little bit of financing from that, and that set me on the first year of the journey. So you're a year into the project. When did you realize that you were going to have to really change the focus of what you were doing? And did you immediately know how you were going to do that? That's a big thing to happen in the middle of a project. When I got connected to Gregory Rachenkov, who was running Moscow's anti-doping laboratory, and he had done all the testing for the Sochi Olympics, he was also overseeing the testing for all Russian athletes. And right about the time that I get connected to him, he actually falls under investigation of WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, on allegations that there might be a state-sponsored system in place. So I was aware that this investigation was going on, but I certainly didn't know at the time where it was going to lead. So as he was essentially advising and doping me, and I was on the one journey, I was subsequently kind of quietly behind the scenes interviewing everybody who was investigating him and putting my foot into that door, not knowing exactly where it was going to lead and pay off. And then, of course, about a year later, in November 2015, the investigation comes out on Gregory. It's a 335-page report, and overnight he is forced to resign from the lab. The lab is shut down, and I'm filming Skype calls, and he tells me that Putin is essentially going to kill him and that he needs to escape. And I book his ticket to Los Angeles at that time, still not knowing 
the extent of his involvement, still not knowing that he was essentially the mastermind of this state-sponsored doping program. But I get him here, and over the next three months, he essentially shares with me in intricate detail everything that he had been involved with in his 12 years of being the laboratory director, but also dating back over 40 years. And during this period of time was where I, I truly realized that essentially what I had shot in that year and a half up to this moment was all just a precursor to what was ultimately going to be the film that needed to be made. And myself and my team and my producers completely shifted focus and realized that not only were we not done making the film, that the film, in essence, had actually just begun. And so 99% of what I shot in that first year ended up on the cutting room floor as we essentially retooled to craft what became ultimately Icarus. So even before Gregory really opened up about the extent of Russia's doping schemes, you two were close enough that you brought him at some risk to yourself also to the United States. Why do you think you two hit it off to that extent? You know, we had been in constant communication. And I think that he liked that I was an American filmmaker, loved Los Angeles. And I think he saw in me an ability to expose a system through an amateur athlete rather than a professional, which he couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And we bonded over our love of dogs. We bonded over our love of sport. And I had went to Russia and spent almost a month there filming with him. And during that time, we, we got really close. I met his family, his children, attended events with him, parties. He came to Los Angeles. And so we just had built this this true friendship during this time. And so when he was in danger, I think at that point in time, it, it was not about for him the film, and it wasn't for me about the film. It was truly, he was in jeopardy. I was his friend. He trusted me, and he confided in me and took a leap of faith, and to which myself and my producing partner, Dan Kogan, I think then navigated a kind of an incredible series of crisis over that next year to continue to protect him, to help to protect him, and, and see to it that Gregory could tell the story that he wanted to tell and then be proven to be a reliable witness in his truth-telling and in his whistleblowing. But if he had not opened up to you, he would not have necessarily been targeted by the Russians. Why do you think he opened up to you or to anyone, knowing essentially that doing so would be throwing away his life as he knew it? I think he opened up to me because we spoke many times. And and during the process of filming with him, especially as— it became clear that his evidence was was very, very serious. And that he not only had this evidence, but it was undeniable. Myself and my producers, Dan Kogan, the others on our team, you know, said to Gregory, look, we are going to do everything we can to act in your best interest. So whatever we are filming, whatever we are making, know that nothing is going to come out or be released unless it's us making a decision as a team. And so as we navigated this crisis together, it was Gregory constantly going, okay, we can do this. Okay, we can do that. And so in that process, we, we really worked as a team to see to it that everything was being done, hopefully, you know, in his best interest to help to protect him. And I think through that process, 
there was so much trust gained. And he knew that myself and the team were not out there to exploit the story. We were there to help him tell his story, and we were there to help him blow the whistle. And before we could go to the New York Times to do that, we had to navigate through all these crises from finding him legal counsel, which was an incredible journey to just get him uh, the right lawyer, to getting him immigration help, to bringing on a crisis manager to help to navigate, to the myriad of different safe houses that, that we had set up for him. And so I think he saw along that journey that we were acting in his best interest. And I think as, as he continued to see that, he continued to reveal more and more secrets and more and more information to myself and my team. And we all worked together to help him bring this story to the world. I guess, though, I'm still curious. Clearly, there's amazing trust between the two of you. But even with all of those considerations that you've – all the ways that you went out of your way, why did he talk at all? He might have been able to stay with his family and keep living in Russia, wouldn't he have? Well, I don't think that he saw it that way. And the way that he explained it to me is when you look at what happened when the investigation comes out where he's forced to resign from the lab and the laboratory is shut down, what immediately happens is Putin goes on state television saying that, first of all, none of this is true. Second of all, there was no state-sponsored system. And third of all, anybody who might have been involved in any sort of wrongdoing would be held personally accountable and that punishment was absolute. And in so doing, Gregory realized that he was disposable, that he was truly just an employee of the state. He was an employee of the Russian ministry. He was doing their dirty work and that he was going to be the guy who was pushed under the bus. And in that period of week between this investigation breaking and me getting him a ticket and him fleeing to Los Angeles, he had two FSB agents, KGB agents, living in his home, and they were quote-unquote guarding him. Mm -hmm. But they were really not guarding him. They were essentially seeing to it that he didn't go anywhere. And he received information from others at the FSB, the KGB, that they were planning his murder and going to make it look like a suicide. So Gregory was dead man walking. Mm -hmm. And he realized that if he stayed in Russia, regardless of if he kept his mouth shut, he believed that he was going to be murdered. And when you look at what happened subsequently to Nikita Kamayov and Vacheslav Sinov, two of his associates that also had information of this system, arguably the only other two people that had information of this system outside of the ministry, meaning essentially Putin and Mutko, who was now the vice president, and Nagornov, who was the deputy vice sports minister. Both of those men are dead. They both died within two weeks of each other of heart attacks. And in the case of Nikita Kamayov, Nikita died during a three-and-a-half-hour heart attack while Nikita's wife was on the phone to Gregory screaming and crying. So it is clear that Gregory made the right decision mm -hmm. to leave. And I think also he realized that, A, coming forward for him was a reconciliation for what he had been involved in. And he viewed himself personally responsible for Russia's attack into the Ukraine because had Russia not won those 33 medals at Sochi, he doesn't believe that Putin would have had the, the strength of the people to go into Ukraine. 
So he had viewed himself indirectly responsible for murder and death. His grandfather was actually killed by Stalin, so he had lived through that. And he viewed that the system had to stop. And I think in so doing, he felt a lot of guilt for what he had been deeply involved in with cheating for thousands and thousands and thousands of athletes out of their medals at the hands of Russia. And so I think there were a myriad of factors, but he was ready to tell the truth at all costs. And clearly, I think in telling the truth, he also became more safe in doing so. So I applaud his courage. Yeah. I mean, it really was, was really his, his doing to bring this story forward. He came to the U.S., you said, November 2015? Yes. And by May 2016, you guys took his story to the New York Times, which I thought was really an interesting decision because you could have held it for your documentary, which would have made it even more sensational. It's still about as sensational as it can get, but I just wonder why you decided to do that. Well, the reason why we decided to do that was twofold. First of all, we felt the responsibility, not as filmmakers, but as, but as people, to bring this story to the world and have it be corroborated and proven true. And we realized that we didn't have access to these samples, the Olympic samples that could prove this wrongdoing in the laboratory in Luzon, Switzerland. We didn't have the ability to launch a full-scale investigation. And it was also three months before the Rio Olympics. And so we felt a tremendous obligation, moral and ethical obligation, to bring this story forward before the Rio Olympics and let the world know that this had happened. So while we could have broken this story in the film, and it might have been sensational, we also, I think, wouldn't, A, have been able to corroborate it. So Russia and everybody else would have said, well, this is lies. How do you prove this? How do you prove this? How do you prove this? Well, eventually it would have been proven, but it could have been a very long time down the line, and there could have been a lot of obstruction that got into the way of that. Secondly, we realized that in going to the New York Times, we would bring this story out on a worldwide level, and it then could not be ignored, and that our role became as filmmakers not so much to break the story, but then to document the fallout of the story and Gregory's journey in whistleblowing and telling the truth rather than the sensationalism of what happened. And so it was a very careful decision that we made to do that. And it was one based on what we felt was a moral and ethical obligation to bring this story forward to the world in the right way. Second was how to best protect Gregory and to bring him public and not keep this secret. And third, and probably most importantly, was so that his truths and his whistleblowing could be proven true. And we realized as a team that we didn't have the power to prove that as truth, but we knew, myself and my producers and my team, knew that everything Gregory was telling us was true. And so it became a, a situation of how do we best serve him and his story to bring this story to the world and see to it that his truths are exposed. We'll talk in a moment about what the International Olympic Committee did this month, but were you surprised back then that they ultimately allowed the Russians to participate in the Rio Games in 2016, even after they had this new information? To me, it was a, a shocking fraud. Mm -hmm. And 
in the film, we really make a big situation of that at the end of the film, which was we bring everything to the New York Times. Richard McLaren leads this investigation, and this investigation goes into the Olympic laboratories and essentially forensically proves everything that Gregory had brought forward, the scratches on the bottle, the urine swapping, the tampering. And the evidence, as Richard McLaren says, is beyond any reasonable doubt. The Olympics takes this evidence and essentially decides to throw it under the rug and pass the buck to the international sporting federations. And what I saw in that was big business and politics and geopolitics, you know, doing what they always does, which is in the interest of money, which is in the interest of, of what is good for business and essentially not protecting any clean athlete on planet Earth that had went into those games and had been cheated, and only acting in the best interest of the Olympic organization. And clearly Thomas Bach and and Vladimir Putin have a known friendship, have a known long-term relationship, and clearly the Olympics was acting in the best interest of Russia at that time. So I was pretty appalled by that decision. And in the meantime, throughout the making of the movie, and then I guess even since, I believe the Russians have really gone after you and Gregory in a number of ways. I've read about attempts at hacking and leaking, the spreading of fake news, denying easily provable behavior, all not unlike what Hillary Clinton was subjected to in the run-up to the election, which more and more looks like at this point we, I think, can all agree based on the evidence the Russians were tampering with. But in your guys' case, what happened? Like uh, just some of the ways they, I don't know if they were seeking to intimidate you or just discredit you. It's been a long journey with that. In the journey of myself and Gregory, right after we brought the story to the New York Times, my archival team working on the film would find every single day different pieces of of media in Russia. Literally, they would do television programs on Gregory and myself to discredit us, calling me, you know, everything from a an American spy to paying Gregory tons of money. None of this was true to to setting up a whole thing that Gregory was now rich and living in a mansion in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, it was the most incredible fake news stories. They, I saw one piece where they had turned Gregory and I into cartoon characters. They hacked his emails. They had been monitoring and hacking his Skype calls. They had been following his family. They raided the homes of his wife and his children and seized their passports. They consequently charged Gregory with a series of crimes in Russia. And all the way through, literally, just a few days ago, had never even acknowledged Gregory. Essentially, at the end of the film, you see Putin still pretending that he doesn't even know who this guy is, which is the Russian way of, you know, dismissing anything by not calling anybody by their name. And that has changed substantially. Over the last few months, Russia has not only a series of criminal charges against Gregory, he is constantly in the Russian news on a every single day basis. Vladimir Putin at his press conference two days ago literally said that this doping scandal is an American plot, 
that U.S. authorities have been drugging Gregory for state-sponsored secrets, and that this is America's attempt to meddle in Russia's upcoming election, and that Gregory has basically been working with the U.S. government to try to meddle and discredit Russia, and that he's being paid by the United States government. Of course, none of this is true because I was there as he Mm -hmm. told me this story. It was Gregory and myself and Dan Kogan and our team The government had nothing to do with this. But in Russia, this has become a huge conspiracy. And not only that, even with all of this evidence that has even been put forward today and the banning of Russia from this Winter Games, Russia has still denied all accountability for this scandal and is still blaming everything on one man, Gregory Rachenkov. So in the meantime... Gregory is in the witness protection program, is that right? To my knowledge, yes. I don't have contact with him. How Um, long has it been since you guys were last in touch? There was a period of time where I was able to get some updates through his legal counsel. And over the last several months, that has all been shut down. So it's been quite some time. Has the film been seen in Russia? Is Netflix available in Russia? I believe that Netflix is available in Russia. And I do believe that is in Russia, but I'm not certain. I have received many messages from Russia that the film has had a, a, a very substantial impact there. And what about you? You know, you've talked a lot about Gregory's safety and well-being and concerns about that. But I mean, how has this affected your life? Have you had to take greater security precautions, both, you know, digitally and all of that, but also even just on a personal safety level? I've certainly taken a lot of precautions on the digital level. On the other hand, I feel that on a personal safety level, there's only so much I can do. You know, I mean, if if the CIA or the KGB really want you, they're going to get you. And ultimately, myself and my team were really more worried about Gregory and his well-being because he was the one who really, really put his life on the line to bring this story forward, and his family is still in Russia. And ultimately, I'm the messenger, and I would hope that you don't shoot the messenger, because what I was doing and what myself and my my team was doing was simply helping a man who wanted to tell the truth to bring that truth forward to the world. So I would hope that I'm not a target. Well, finally, how did you process the news that came out earlier this month, I think December 5th, that even though the International Olympic Committee had sort of blown the decision in 2016, they have now decided to ban Russia from the 2018 Winter Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. And it's abundantly clear that they would not have arrived at that decision without the information that you got from Gregory and turned over to the Times and featured in the doc. So how do you, you've actually now in a demonstrably provable, visible way, made a a huge impact on something that will be felt around the world. Well, I was very, very pleased by the Olympic decision. And in the investigation finding, the Schmidt Report, as it's called, they cited Icarus as a substantial part of the evidence that they used to make the decision to ban Russia from these upcoming Winter Olympics. But it was ultimately Gregory's legal team and Gregory who since the film stopped production, worked so hard behind the scenes 
to continue to push and push and push on the Olympics and that investigation, these truths. And his lawyers and Gregory really deserve so much of that credit because while the film, as you know, Icarus was done, and, and at the end of Icarus it says that Russia will be going to those Winter Olympics. And it's been the past year of his legal counsel and his op-eds to the New York Times and the disclosing of his diaries to the Olympics and myriad affidavits that finally made the Olympics take action. So, you know, I'm very humbled by this journey and, you know, and applaud Gregory and, and his legal team that they fought so hard to see to it that he was proven to be a reliable witness. And in their decision, not only did the Olympics basically come forward and say that everything that Gregory had brought forward was true beyond a reasonable doubt, they banned Vitaly Mutko from the Olympics for life. And Mutko is now the vice president of Russia. And he is the man who is responsible for bringing the World Cup to Russia. And he sits on FIFA's committee. And he is in charge of Russian World Cup. And now FIFA is starting to investigate the same thing that the Olympics have investigated and the New York Times and Richard McLaren and Russia's World Cup is now in jeopardy as well. And this is all due to Gregory Rachenkov. And of course, he trusted me with his story and we worked very hard to bring that story to the world. But but I applaud Gregory and his and his bravery to really shed a light on this. And I applaud the, the Olympics for for doing right And I'm sure that that was a very, very hard decision for them to make. Well, I see a lot of documentaries every year, and I can say that no one has impressed me more than this one this year. I've seen it three times. It's incredible. So I'm very happy for you that it's been recognized with the inclusion on the shortlist. And best of luck the rest of the way. Thank you, Brian Fogel. Thanks for having me, Scott. And now for my interview with Clive Davis. Over the course of our conversation in his suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel, the 85-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a guy who grew up in Brooklyn not particularly enamored with music and who then got a scholarship to and graduated from Harvard Law School wound up working in the music industry for the first time at the age of 28 and then running Columbia Records at the age of 35. What motivated him in June 1967 to fly from New York to Monterey for the Monterey Pop Festival and what he experienced there an epiphany, in his words, that led to his first signing, Janis Joplin, and changed the trajectory of his life and career forever, how he subsequently learned to trust his instincts and ears at Columbia en route to signing the likes of Bruce Springsteen and offering crucial advice to artists like Simon and Garfunkel, and how his tenure at the label came to an end in 1973 in a way that, in his eyes, was terribly unjust, how he then rose from the ashes and built Arista Records into the largest independently distributed record label in America, signing the likes of Barry Manilow, Patti Smith, Lou Reed, The Kinks, Iggy Pop, The Grateful Dead, Sean Combs, Carlos Santana, Alicia Keys, and, most famously, Whitney Houston, who became his greatest protege. He found every song she ever recorded. How, in 2000, BMG, which owned Arista, tried to force him out of the label he founded and quickly came to regret it when, despite his advancing age, he proved as adept as ever at identifying incredible new talent, plus much more. You won't find more of a music industry insider than Clive Davis. Some even joke that CD doesn't stand for compact disc, but for him. So having him on this podcast was a treat. Without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
Mr. Davis, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Let me first say that, you know, there, there's obviously going to be some overlap between the questions I have and stuff that's addressed in this great new documentary about your life, Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives. Hopefully you won't mind that, and this will whet people's appetite for the documentary. And so to begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and my father was both an electrician and a tie salesman. I spent all of my childhood in Brooklyn, going to PS 161, going to Erasmus Hall High School, and then I got a scholarship to NYU. But during the freshman year, within a few months of each other, both my parents passed away. It's uh, unbelievable to even think about that. I, I want to obviously ask you about how that affected you. But first, let's go back to when you were you know, pre-college, growing up. What sort of music did you listen to? I just listened to the top station at the time. It was called the Make Believe Ballroom, WNDW, Martin Block's Make Believe Ballroom. And that's where you would hear the hits of the day. And I didn't collect music, didn't have it as a special hobby, although I was certainly aware of all of the hits of that era. So you were obviously a good student to wind up going off to NYU with a scholarship, and I read you were president of your class as a freshman and student council as well. So then this terrible thing happened with both of your parents, and I just wonder how you even managed to go on. I can only imagine how devastating that must have been. It was dramatic. It dramatically uprooted my life. I love my life in Brooklyn, 1321 Union Street, which where I was there from like the age of four until the age of 18. Mm-hmm. And I only had one relative. It was a sister who was seven years older than me. I knew her, obviously, as a relative, but you know, she left the house when I was 12. She got married at 19. She had one child who was one year old. She was living in Bayside, Queens, and I went to live with her. Took a bus to the F train of the subway that got me to Greenwich Village and Washington Square College of NYU. Yes. As you, you know, continue with your schooling, it seems like law school was the next step. And again, it's a testament to your abilities as a student, another scholarship to no less than Harvard Law School. When you were there, and I guess even as you graduated in 1956, what did you imagine you would do with that? when you went out into the real world? I had no picture of what a lawyer did. All I knew is that to rise above your station, I had the sum when my parents passed away of $4,000 to my name. That was after cashing in a life insurance policy, but there were loans against it. So I had $4,000. I worked, of course, every summer, took part-time jobs, And to the extent that my grades qualified for law review, but because they paid me as a member of the faculty, as a member of the board of student advisors, I took that Mm -hmm. because I needed the $500. And I went to work in a law firm directly after law school. And initially it was, from what I read uh, and, and remember from the film, you know, a small law firm at first, 
You then, I guess they contracted and you were out of luck for a little bit. How do you then end up, though, at a different law firm, which was your first brush with music, at least the music business? I went to a smaller law firm thinking that it would not be that New York, wonderful schools, very competitive, very hard-driven, very, you know, and I thought that going to a small law firm would shield me from the competitive environment of a large law firm. I wasn't out of luck. I anticipate they were keeping me, just to correct what you said, but I saw the vulnerability of a small law firm when their largest client merged with another company and the law firm lost out on that merger. So because my grades qualified for the best and of the largest law firms, I looked around and Bob Rosenman, the son of Samuel Rosenman, who was a very prominent figure, he was the lawyer for Franklin Roosevelt, he was the lawyer for Harry Truman, he coined the phrase brain trust and New <laughs> Deal. So I knew of that law firm. It was, in ethnic terms, the top Jewish, among the top right, three right. Jewish law firms in New York. And I applied, and I was not interested in doing litigation. I was interested in doing non-litigation. Yeah. And that was music to their ears. They had an opening in quote, non-litigation, and so I went to work there. So that means drafting contracts, doing tax and real estate planning, stuff like that, right? And estate planning, yes, all of the above, right. So how do you then get assigned, I guess, to their CBS account? It was Columbia Artist Management, Inc., because of antitrust that was separate from CBS, but they kept the name Columbia, Columbia Artist Management, Inc., And so in non-litigation, yes, I did all the contracts for when they brought in Parishnikov for the great Nureyev and and symphony orchestras. And they did have a Broadway Theater Alliance touring subsidiary. So I did their contracts. Was it show business in the traditional (laughs) sense? No. Not that glamorous. Uh, Did it have anything to do with the record industry? No. But... When Harvey Shine, who had been at that law firm, graduated and became the chief lawyer for Columbia Records and was now wanted to become head of their international operations as they were establishing the first U.S. subsidiaries in the U.K. and in France, namely in London and in Paris, he would be traveling a lot. He needed a lawyer to replace him, and he asked at the firm who was doing CAMI, Columbia Artist Management and Contracts. I was that person. He approached me and offered me that job. And at that point, you were just 28? Exactly, 28. That's amazing. So from what I gather, you pretty quickly impressed the, the president of Columbia, Goddard Lieberson, by, I think, among other things, handling the the dispute with Bob Dylan. I guess he had started to claim that he had been underage when he signed with them. He was looking to get out of his contract. Is that how you think you would I think that what impressed him was not so much that, although that was a fact. I think that Goddard, 
who was the dean of Broadway, certainly for records. And Columbia had the cast album from My Fair Lady and West Side Story and Sound of Music and so many others. And Goddard did all those albums. He was impressed that because I was dealing with the lawyers on the other side for all those albums, that I was there opening night because I love Broadway. I love the theater. I love the idea of opening nights. And so the only persons from Columbia was Goddard and me. Also, when we traveled, we had a chance to interact. And when we traveled to the UK to establish the London Company and the France-Parisian Company, he had a chance to see me work with the lawyers on the other side in establishing these subsidiary. So there was more than the usual personal contact. And I, by this time, really had nothing to do with music. So it's not that Goddard felt I had ears or that I remotely knew that I might develop or have a gift of ears. He had enough dealing with me in that five-year period when I was general counsel to know my overall approach, my work ethic, my standards of excellence, if you will. And based on that, and the fact that there was competition between A&R and marketing for who would head Columbia, he decided, I think, I would be a great buffer between the two. And he gave me that job without he or I knowing that I would find a whole unexpected future in music. Because, I don't know if it's 1966, 1967, you end up replacing him. What happened well, to him? Well, no, no, he appointed me as he, head of Columbia. Uh, I see, I And see. so that he was the group president because, you know, they had since bought Steinway pianos and Leslie speakers and Fender guitars and created playthings so that he became a group president. I became head of Columbia, Columbia. Records. Records, right. So can you set the scene of what it was like in, let's say, just before June 67, when you're at Columbia, you're sort of coming into that position now for the first time. You mentioned a lot of Broadway emphasis on on the type of music they were putting out. But what were and what weren't they focusing on at that point? Well, the makeup of Columbia Records, they were masterful in classical music, apart from Broadway. They had the New York Philharmonic. They had the Philadelphia Orchestra with Eugene Ormandy. New York Philharmonic, I must, of course, say they had Leonard Bernstein. And they had the Cleveland Orchestra with George Zell. But then they had the incredible virtuosos of Vladimir Harvitz on piano, of Isaac Stern and Glenn Gould on piano, of Isaac Stern on violin. I mean, they had... The great masters, they had a wonderful, wonderful classical music business, but of course, a great classical music album sale would have been anything in excess of fifty or 75,000 right. albums, so right. that very prestigious, very strong. They also, on a popular side of music, were very strong in easy listening, middle-of-the-road music. They had Tony Bennett, they had Andy Williams, they had Barbara Streisand, and they had Jerry Vale. They had a number of strong, what we call middle-of-the-road music artists. They had just signed, but no records yet out, Simon and Garfunkel. Uh They had signed 
by dint of the great A&R work of John Hammond, Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. But Dylan, at that point, was more known for writing songs that Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Birds, other artists were recording. It wasn't that he was a breakthrough commercially successful artist. So they had the nascent aspect of very quality rock artists. They were really not in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did have Peter Paul Revere and the Raiders and the New Christian Minstrels, but they did not have the background, let's say, in R&B. I mean, they had at one time Aretha Franklin, but they really were giving her pop songs to sign. So before I got my job, she had left to go to Atlantic Records where Jerry Wexler knew exactly what to do with her, took her to church, had the incredible classic hits that Atlantic had with her. But they were not in R&B. They were not in rock. They certainly, third in market share, RCA and Capital were the two largest labels, but they were certainly a major. They were one of the three majors in the accumulation of the diversity of their artistry. And I would say they were slightly profitable. (laughs) They were important, classy, qualitative in every category. But to really make it profitable in a major way, something had to happen. And so against all odds, the thing that happened is you, who were, I think it's fair to say, not a part of the counterculture movement at that time, not a not a hippie, not any of that. You end up going to the Monterey Pop Festival in June 67, flying out from New York. I wonder what motivated you to do that and then what happened there that was such a turning point both for music generally but also for you and your work specifically. Well, I had done maybe two deals before I went to Monterey personally. Otherwise, I watched, I soaked it up, I listened to everything that I could to at least not ever be an ivory tower president, but to really be aware of what was going on in the music scene. I had made a deal for the American rights for Donovan, who was considered the British Dylan, but I did convince him Mm that Epic and Columbia were two separate labels, and attached to the Donovan camp was the great producer, Mickey Most. And so the combination of Donovan and Mickey Most was very appealing to me. The only other deal that I made uh, personally was with Lou Adler to form Old Records. And the first record that Old Records and Lou Adler gave to us was the Scott McKenzie record of if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. (laughs) And that became a number one record. And so in in the midst of that and the heady nature of that, environment of that, Lou Adler said, you got to come to Monterey. It's the first pop festival. I'm the chief organizer, producer there. We have this relationship So I went with my wife to Monterey. And as you might have seen in my documentary, I was the fish out of water. I had no idea. No idea that there was this, first of all, the social and cultural revolution that was 
taking place in Haight-Ashbury. Everybody, so many of the people in Monterey, they were long flowing gowns and long hair and flowers in your hair and scarves and I'm wearing my tennis sweater, okay? <laughs> Coming to the afternoon concert, very New York, very preppy, even though I never really was preppy. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, right. as I said, but I did wear the khaki pants. <laughs> I did wear the tennis sweater. And and now that I see the pictures there, <laughs> I'm the one that stood out <laughs> looking freakish and different. But what a revolution. What a change. If the word epiphany has any meaning, that changed my life. That was my epiphany. It's not a cliche to say mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. And I was seeing artists that I never dreamt that I would be seeing, one of whom was Big Brother and the Holding Company, didn't even say featuring Janis Joplin. She was just a member just one of, of the group. So I was unprepared when this whirling dervish took the stage, <laughs> hypnotically compelling, riveting, electrifying, like no one else I had ever seen. And over the course of these three days, you know, and seeing the electric flag with Mike Bloomfield on guitar and Buddy Miles on drums and uh, seeing Hendrix and seeing the electrification of the guitar, I, I knew that it was not just a social and cultural revolution, it was a musical revolution. Mm-hmm. I was there with no other A&R people. I was there with no visible competitor. And I said, you know, by just the visceral reactions going through my body, through my head, I had to make a move. I never expected to never intended to, but I was going to go after and buy the contract because there was no records out for Big Brother and the holding company and Janis Joplin. So the only way anyone ever would have known about them was to see them live. Totally. That's amazing. They were under contract to Mainstream Records, a small independent record company, and I entered into negotiations and bought that contract for $200,000. A lot of money that day. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. most artists, just to give you the picture, yeah. if you were a brand new artist, if you were a few weeks later running into Blood, Sweat, and Tears or Santana or Chicago or artists that I would, they were, we would sign them for like $15,000, yeah, yeah. 15 20 at most. But I was determined to make in particular, Janis Joplin, my first real artist signing. And I did sign the electric flag, and I knew that there would be a revolution coming. I just knew it in my gut. I started hiring people that would be aware of how to do this with me from a marketing point of view. I took them to the big convention, the NARM convention. That was the industry convention, National Association of Record Merchandises. Uh So every major sales organization would be there. And I took them to the Columbia convention that we had annually and said I would go on record that this forthcoming music would be heard around the world. And what's great over the next few years that unexpectedly and unbeknownst to me, I did have what has turned out to be a natural gift. And so 
I signed Aerosmith. I signed Blood Sweat. I signed Santana in Chicago. And but that natural gift we should just specify is that somehow you hear before others that somebody has potential to take whatever raw talent you're hearing, you know, at a given time and do much more with it. Is or how would you describe? Yes, they were all self-contained artists. I, mean, I had no ability to do anything musically <laughs> with them other than identify them. But I did feel each of them, and it turned out that each has been a lifetime career. Right. It wasn't a hit record. I wasn't appraising or prizing. Just looking for songs that no connection with their material dealt with their material that they found, that they wrote or came up with. But what do you attribute this to? As you say, you were not somebody who grew up playing music. You were not somebody who reads music, as far as I know. All of this stuff. So why you, as opposed to somebody who is you know, himself or herself a music artist, why are you able to do this? To this day, I never found the answer. <laughs> I, the answer is that I would see 20 others right. and say no. <laughs> and then see another 20 right. and say no. But I did pick these artists, right. including Earth, Wind, and Fire, mm -hmm. Loggins and Messina, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, the Weather Report, all very distinctive. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I hope, I don't know, it's facts so that, you know, when you first do it, you know, skeptics can throw whatever skepticism onto the plate. The point is, the facts speak for That's themselves. Right. And, and it you was know, a glorious are... period. It was a incredibly thrilling period of discovery, enlightenment, and incredible results. Absolutely. I mean, so that in hiring so many people, you know, that were talented to help market, promote, sell, radio promotion. I mean, those relationships to this day are very important and still exist. I want to just really quickly follow up on a few things. When you made Joplin your first sort of major artist signing, how did she suggest celebrating? Janice was very creative, but she was very spontaneous and heartfelt. And she just said, you know, here we're in Black Rock of CBS and the tall structure. And the idea of us just signing a contract did not at all translate the uniqueness of this experience. So she, in a wonderfully honest, nice way, said, you know, we should go to bed together. <laughs> right she then might have there. used the F word. I'm <laughs> cleaning it up for her. I was flat using an equal F word. Right. But I said, you know, you don't mix business with pleasure. Right. And I said, let's just go collaborate and let's just do it together. And really, I guess, pretty soon after that, I think with, particularly with Peace of My Heart, you guided her in an interesting way, because this is another thing people should understand. It's not just recognizing talent, but it's advising talent that you do. In this case, I think she wanted to have a, a much more verbose, longer, not as radio-friendly version of that well, song, right? Well, it's not what she wanted. It was the band's album cut. And so that it was not that it was verbose. It was not that it was inflated. It was not that it was too long for an album cut. It was so strong. I mean, they didn't write it, but Bart they Burns, did. Right? Yes. 
So they did a perfectly fine special album cut, but that cut I did identify as being a candidate for a single. And in those days, you really could not go over three or most three minutes and 20, 30 seconds, or radio would just not play it. Mm -hmm. So an edit was required. And so I did take it on myself to work with an engineer to prepare an edit retaining the essence of the song, never adding anything, right. working totally with their material, but putting it clearly into the candidacy for a hit record. And when I explained it to her, I said, look, it's all you, it's all the group, it's all your stuff, but we need an edit because sure. we can't go to them with the length of the album cut. And she this was not a source or a bone of contention. She and it agreed. went gold. So there you go, right? I mean, <laughs> and I guess the sad footnote there is it was only something like two years that you actually got to, to work with her. And we've seen, I guess, throughout the history of this business, unfortunately, there's been a number of examples. And But let's Let's turn to just another illustration of, of this sort of hard to explain but undeniable skill set that you bring to the table. What happened with the fifth and final album of Simon and Garfunkel, which now is under your watch at Columbia? They're ready to go with one ordering of songs that could have really, you know, the, the, the album is shaped in a large way by the ordering of the songs. What happened when you saw that? In talking of Simon and Garfunkel, the major interaction that I had had with them, building up ultimately a personal friendship with each, really first in convincing them that there was an album in The Graduate. Mm -hmm. And they didn't feel that there was an album in The Graduate. They were working on, I think, bookends at the time. And, you know, so I was sort of surprised when I went to see the movie and I heard what Mike Nichols did with Scarborough Fair and I heard the music that was there and I realized it was a very narrow definition of excluding the Dave Grusin scoring for that film along with some of the great songs in that film. And so I did have to persuade them that coming with the soundtrack album right before of bookends that it did present to us a terrific opportunity to ride both separately up the charts and that is the way to use the cliched term superstar that's the way superstars are formed that you do things you achieve things that no one else before ever did or mm -hmm. did easily and so Fortunately, they both wrote up the charts. Both were incredible albums and to this day are model classic American music, contemporary music albums. And so they put Simon and Garfunkel then in a very unique category. To me, they were the American Beatles. When you go to a concert, if and when, of course, I was fortunate to have... Simon and Garfunkel opened for Paul Simon. So let me just say that when you go to a concert and you hear the songs of Simon and Garfunkel written by Paul Simon for the first half of a concert, and then you hear what Paul did later as a solo artist, you know, 
with Graceland, with You Can Call Me Al, with Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, Mother and Child Reunion. I mean, the material, what has come from the pen of Paul Simon, to me, equals what has come from the wonderful pens of McCartney and Lennon Mm -hmm. and is very, very special. In my documentary, they obviously only had time to deal with the issue of Bridge Over Troubled Water. And they had worked their tails off on this album, and they finally were ready to reveal it to me. And we went in the studio with Roy Halley, their wonderful engineer, producer, and they were asking my opinion. What should be that first single? What should be that first single? And I listened. And of course, Cecilia stood out. You know, that catchy, wonderfully accessible record with tempo. But then you come to Virgil Trouble Water and the majesty of it, the uniqueness of it, the all-time classic of it. And, you know, in life, you always got to know what the rules are. You always got to know what the expected nature is. But then you've got to know when you can say, this is an exception and lead your company to that. The two most vivid examples, at least from my life that I think of, this is one of them, Uh to say Bridge Over Troubled Water should be the first single. And I think Paul and Artie were shocked then. (laughs) They're in my documentary separately being interviewed, which is so appreciative of me and so grateful that all these years later, what is it, 45 years later, their memory is keen and they said that I was adamant that this is the exception to the rule. Go for your home run. Right. And it made a big difference. The other example is I Will Always Love You and keeping the acapella, you know, in that after radio was saying, come on, you got to take that acapella off. You know, you get the traditionalist, you get the regular thinkers, you know, and you got to know when to put your hands up and say, hold up here. Mm -hmm. I want to go from an all time for an all-time home run. So let's not always give the predictable. Well, one last Columbia-era question I have to ask you. I'm going to ask because just a week ago or so, I was in New York and went and bought myself a ticket to go see Springsteen on Broadway, which blew my mind, not just because of the music, but the storytelling. And forget about Broadway, forget about the biggest stages in the world. He might have never gotten out of Asbury Park had you not responded to him in 1972 when I guess he showed up at your office. What happened? Well, I have a lot of Springsteen stories packed into our relationship from the time that John Hammond, with great foresight, brought him to my office so that I could see him and be part of the signing if I saw or agreed to his talent. And I did. And he went in the studio, and he came out with his proposed album, which he was going to call and did call Greetings from Asbury Park. But I did pick up the phone, and I called him. And I said, you know, as great as John and I think you are, you're going to have to have some radio-friendly songs here. We're going to have to have some songs to get played on the radio. And another artist might have been threatened by that. 
I wasn't giving him any material, never. You're talking about all these seven, eight years, I never gave any artist any songs. It's all their genius, all their material. But I said, would you consider mm-hmm. writing one or two more songs that we all feel we can go to radio with? And such a mind, such a brilliant guy to this day. Mm-hmm. And he went back and he wrote Blinded by the Light and Spirit in the Night, something which in my documentary he graciously says, well, that was a good call because it <laughs> did lead to that. Right. But I'll tell you, you're bringing up Springsteen on Broadway. I just went to see it uh-huh. a few weeks ago. And I had the good fortune, because he doesn't do backstages, but he does with me, because mm-hmm. I was there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I, I went backstage. First thing that he said to me, so I just two nights ago saw your documentary. I'm blown away by wow. it. He said, it is an incredible thing to see. And that part of it, where you're reading the lyrics, are blinded by the light that's in there. He said, that's amazing. Where'd they get that footage from? I said, I'll be honest with you. I remember doing it. I remember why. I don't think they say in my documentary Mm -hmm. why. I did it because as much as I enjoyed the talent of Eric Anderson and Tim Horton, they were being called by the critics another Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, my God. They're not saying it of the magnitude of Bob Dylan. They're lumping every folk rock artist in with Bob Dylan as almost, you know, someone that comes after him. And I don't want that to happen to Bruce. So the only way that I could avoid that pitfall is to read the lyrics of each of his songs so that nobody, after seeing that imagery, those words, would say this is another. Because it was... And of course, look, the two of them have become the two poet laureates Mm -hmm. for the world Mm -hmm. over the last half century. But I knew that I've got to distinguish Bruce Springsteen from Bob Dylan. And that was the route that I chose. Somehow the Ridley Scott firm, Chris Brickell, the director, found that video that I did that was sent to every Columbia branch. And it just gets... In the documentary, an incredible reaction. I'm doing it tonight at the Grammy Museum. It's being shown. That's fantastic. So it's very uh, exciting. But Bruce was could not have been more gracious. After, I guess it was seven years at running Columbia Records, 1966 to 1973, what happened as you see it, looking back, that led to the end of that and then shortly thereafter the beginning of Arista Records, which... Arista, let's Arista, pronounce Excuse me, sorry. See, we all, in New York, we all know how to pronounce it. Yes. I, because it's a name of an honor society that every <laughs> high school has. It's, right. Um, called Arista. <laughs> anyway, what happened was one of the fates that I had to overcome. There was somebody in the company submitting fraudulent invoices to finance for reimbursement forging my signature among hundreds of other signatures and clearly caught red-handed and was going to go to jail. And his lawyer said to them, look, cooperate with the U.S. Attorney's Office. You will get a lower prison term if you tell them that you believe there's payola in the record industry, including Columbia, 
And that became a witch hunt investigation where the entire record industry and Columbia was scrutinized with laser beam intensity. A few million dollars was spent by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey. And CBS, who was a government-licensed beneficiary of a network license, was told by their attorneys, we don't have time to do... They had done an initial investigation. I was never involved with it. I was re-elected to the board of directors. But here, when they realized they were facing a full-blown industry investigation, they let me go, and they fired me. And they, and they tried to separate themselves from me. So I was almost written out of their history. That was what I was going to mention because the way they handled it was pretty awful. pretty awful. I mean, As Paul Simon in my documentary yeah. said, and everybody in the industry felt, it was painful and cold-blooded. And, you know, you get to be a sacrificial lamb for something that took two years, two and a half years to withstand. So that was a tough period. And then the correction is never as big as the original exactly. headline. So, exactly. I mean, all what, what people knew was that you'd been escorted out of your own company by yes. security. You'd eventually, I think, been disbarred. No, 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 not no, disbarred? no, no, I'll tell you, no, not at all. Okay. What happened on that subject yeah. was that two years later, after there was a personal and industry investigation, the U.S. Attorney's Office was coming up empty. And so... The same day that they had to announce that there were no major indictments coming anywhere, they, with respect to me, dropped every claim that they had. And they said to me, because I was about to go into litigation with them, Mm -hmm. that if I agreed that one vacation that I took as a semi, as a business trip to Jamaica was after Bob Marley, and I was getting both a Lifetime Achievement Award, was visiting endless recording studios, was auditioning Jamaican artists looking for a new Bob Marley, that if I agreed that that trip as a business trip should be half personal because my wife came mm-hmm. on such a trip, that everything would be dropped. Now, at that time, there was no infraction affecting lawyers. It was a misdemeanor. I would get a few thousand dollar fine, but other than agreeing to split it, it seemed innocuous. It seemed I was already starting Arista Records, running Arista Records, and so the attorney said, look, they are in effect sinking, and the judge knows that all this press, all this publicity was so wrong, so injurious and damaging we recommend that you accept it. I did. What happened was, a year or two later, there was legislation in New York passed. that So therefore, there was a tax admission for the sum of like $8,000. Yeah. But there was a law passed that said any lawyer who was guilty of any amount of a tax issue, their license would be suspended until they took the bar again. Now, this was never the case, and it was applied retroactively to anything that had occurred because when I agreed to do this, there was no such impact. 
So here I was <laughs> running hours to finding out a few years later right. that my ability to practice law was technically put into suspension until if I were to take the bar again. So that weighed on my head because there was no wrongdoing right. involved. And you're talking about a good 25 years, 23 years later, by saying, you know, I want no blemish right. on my personal record to exist. So at a time, as the documentary points out, I was frankly making tens of millions yeah. of dollars both based on my equity share, phantom equity share, and the success we were having in music at Arista. And I took the bar exam and I passed it. And of course, <laughs> never intending to practice law, right. but I was not going to leave a blemish on my record. That's great. So at the outset of Arista, were you doing anything differently there than you had been doing at Columbia? And also why around that same time, I think, maybe you know the exact year, I think I saw 1974, but that would have meant before Arista, why did you start this pre-Grammys party that you do every year that's now the coolest ticket in town? So just any differences between what you were doing at Arista versus Columbia and then also the, the start of the Grammys party? There was a difference as I approached Arista. Here was a brand new company. I had been through a traumatic, shocking, really McCarthy-like witch hunt and emerged victorious but feeling tainted because the headlines never a vindication ever get the size of the accusation. And the first record comes out and it goes straight to number one. And what I did differently is that hungry for Arista to be a major label because during the time that I was at Columbia, Columbia soared from number three to number one. We became the largest record company in the world, really. And here I was starting from scratch, almost from scratch. Columbia Pictures had a record company before called Bell Records that they were going to give me the catalog of Bell Records, which was valuable and providing billing. So I was not starting from scratch, but I could keep any artist contract that I wanted to. So I auditioned these artists. I went to see Melissa Manchester, I went mm -hmm. to see Baron Manilow, and I kept the fifth dimension and a few handful of artists to be part of this brand new. I had nothing ever to do. The press is often erroneous. I had nothing ever to do with Bell Records. But I started Arister, and as part of Arister, I took a few artists who had been on Bell to be a part of Arister. Mm -hmm. And so what I did for the first time is that if artists did not write for my market share to rival a major, I could not just depend on self-contained rock artists, which were the only artists that I signed at Columbia. I had to broaden it. A&R stands for artist and repertoire. Mm -hmm. At Columbia, I only did artists. Mm -hmm. That was it. But I then got into the repertoire, classic, traditional, that if you had an Aretha, if you had an artist that 
does not write. Dionne Warwick. Or if you had someone like Barry Manilow who did write, but he needed more hits than he was able to generate from self-writing, I would, with my A&R staff, would find hit songs and suggest it to them. So Barry gave me two songs per album. <laughs> that was after the hit of Mandy right. and that I gave them right. and that he brilliantly arranged and performed. And with the success of that, and then in the years to follow, I write the songs, Can't Smile Without You, Weekend in New England, trying to get the feeling again. I made it through the rain. So many great hits. Each of these two songs became a major hit, alongside of some of the hits that he wrote. Right. Copacabana, right. One Voice, Could It Be Magic? I have to add that because we both, through separate ways, combined to right. come up with material, and that's why Barry's selling out stadiums all over the world today. And so I started getting a backlog of material uh, that could be hit. And I said, you know, I can't sign another male. I, I look for what female has a great voice that could do some of this material that I was backlogged with. And I came to Dion Warwick. And Barry helped me. Barry, with I Never Love This Way Again, a great record, but it would have been years later that I could have recorded it with Barry. So we went in the studio, Barry producing, and I Never Love This Way Again, and Deja Vu, subsequently Heartbreaker, and that's what Friends of Four to lead to an illustrious career for Dion that led Aretha Franklin to call me one day. And... (laughs) said, look, I'm no longer working with Jerry Wexler, and recent material has not been classic like the treasures that I had in our great relationship. I need someone to do for me what Jerry did, what you're doing for Dion. Mm -hmm. And so I signed the incredible Queen of Soul, Aretha. And, of course, that led to, in 1983 the signing of Whitney Houston. When Mandy went to number one, it also got respect from the industry, and it was nominated for two Grammys. And it was then that I started the tradition of my Grammy party the day before the Grammys. And I, Barry came to me, what are we going to do? We're nominated. What are we doing Grammy night? I said, gee, you know, as head of Columbia, every label had its big party the night of the Grammys. I said, Barry, embarrassingly, we'll be one table at Jason's restaurant. I said, we've got to do something different. And I came up with the celebration of a different day, and it worked because I found that Stevie Wonder came, Elton John came, John Denver came. I knew it was on to something good and important, and it led to the tradition of my pre-Grammy gala the night before, and that is still existing 42 years later. It's smart because the night before, everyone's still a winner. Everybody's (laughs) still a winner. All the industry comes, and so my competitors came. They made an exception for me, which I treasure, to this day, and 
Mo Austin, Amadurdigan, Quincy Jones, Jerry Moss, Herb Albert, Jack Holzman, Joe Smith, anyway, all of them over the years have come to this day, Lucien Grange. They've all come, universal, yeah. and it's a wonderful night of celebrating music. And I look forward to the first time being back in New York City yeah. in 15 years on January 27th. I know the oh. Hilton will miss you. They'll, <laughs> it'll be somewhere in New York. It but. will be in New York. So yes. you mentioned that there were certain artists that you found songs for them. I think the most famous example has to be someone who I think you found every song she ever recorded, who was, of course, Whitney Houston. And I just wonder if you can share, I know you've talked about it before, but how did you first even learn she existed? And why did you two hit it off to the extent that you really sort of became like a like a godfather to her, right? I heard about her from Jerry Griffith, an a and man that worked for me, and he had heard her sing. There were a few other companies at that time. Electra, Bruce Lundvall, I know, was there at that time. And I had heard about her from Luther Mandros, with whom I was working with Aretha Franklin. I had heard about her from Dionne Warwick, but... I was principally motivated to set up the audition by Jerry Griffith, and I went to a club called Sweetwaters on 68th, I think, in Broadway at the time, and she was doing two songs in her mother's act, Sissy Houston, where she would step out. She would otherwise do backgrounds, but two songs she stepped out and did solo. There were songs of her choice. That's why I have to laugh at this early documentary of someone else that said, oh, Whitney was so much blacker and frustrated that she didn't do totally urban material. Well, if she was, she wasn't doing it in the act that I first heard her. She was doing The Wiz's Home, the song Home from The Wiz, the Broadway show. And she was doing The Greatest Love of All, a song that I had commissioned for the life of Muhammad Ali eight years earlier, (laughs) and George Benson had recorded it. I was blown away. I was stunned by her talent, meaning that she found in The Greatest Love of All that I knew that Michael Masser and Linda Creed, who wrote that song, perhaps didn't even know was there until... Whitney breathed new life into it. So we connected right from the beginning. Evidence, she wouldn't sign with me unless the company gave her a key man clause, which meant that if I ever left the company, she could leave too. Mm-hmm. Now, I couldn't, that would be very self serving if I allowed, never before or after ever. Right got permission from a parent company to have such a clause in the contract. But it was important to her and her representatives and family. And she and I bonded right from the beginning. And I started on a two-year odyssey to showcase her. I brought her on the Merv Griffin Mm -hmm, show, which mm -hmm. is in my documentary. You see that first performance of this young, innocent, soulful, incredible presence of Whitney singing home from The the Wiz. I brought her on Merv two weeks, three weeks after I had signed her, Mm -hmm. calling her for the next generation 
in the tradition of the great Lena Horne or Dionne Warwick. Did she, at her best, possess the best voice you've ever heard? It's very tough comparing her and Aretha Franklin Mm -hmm. and the great Dionne Warwick. Mm -hmm. These are titans. Certainly in the case of Dionne, let's give her justice from urban pop point of view. Who could have sung those Backrack David classics the way that Dionne? So let's put Dionne to one side for urban pop, Backrack David, for all those classics like Alphian, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, and anyone who had a heart, and I can go 15 others. (laughs) And of course, Aretha Franklin, who... And every Rolling Stone poll is considered the greatest greatest voice of all time. I would have to say that the three or four, I mean, again, putting the special urban pop of Dion to one side, Mm -hmm. the three greatest singers of all time are Aretha Franklin, Barbara Streisand, and Whitney Houston. So Whitney is totally in that. Pantheon. Rare of all-time category. Yeah. And to the extent that Whitney could do anything, meaning she'll do I Will Always Love You, she'll do The Greatest Love of All, but then she'll do I Want to Dance with Somebody, and How Will I Know? And it's not right, but it's okay. And prowl the stage, which you don't see the others doing. I mean, the versatility of, of Whitney is astonishing. I mean, she can do up-tempo dance, urban, so that it really, there's no question that among the contemporary music producers, writers, that Whitney in that category is the greatest of all time. Now you talk about her still in the in the present. Is it just so tough because of that special relationship that you guys had to even still wrap your mind around the fact that she's preceded all of us in moving on? Well, a, it's very hard to wrap your mind around the fact that she's gone, number one. I use the present tense to say that if I had to rank yes. the all-time singers, yes. that she is at that top rank in the ranking with Aretha and, yeah. and Streisand. I'm well aware she's not here, yeah. but... So much involved am I with her legacy. So much am I involved. The new album just came out, more from the bodyguard. So you're hearing remixes mm-hmm. and live versions and studio versions. And I am presently dealing with yeah. a lot of Whitney's all-time music. Yeah. But there's no doubt that her death was just a tremendous shock. I had just been with her 48 hours before, and she was vibrant and looking forward to making a new album and getting rid of the nicotine from smoke that had impaired her upper register, where she was said, I'm cutting out smoking. Mm-hmm. In fact, she was at the Hilton for your pre-Grammys bash, right? Not to perform. She was there. No, 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 but to be there. Because yeah. the biggest night every year was her attending yeah. My programming gala. Yeah. yeah, she was there. So in the last few minutes here, what I hope we can do is just kind of bring this into your present era, which is as amazing as any of these others we've talked about. I think to capture the insanity, at least to an outsider, of what the music business seems to be sometimes, can you just explain, in 2000, as I understand it, BMG Entertainment, which owned Arista, tried to 
I don't know if it was an ageist thing or what, but they tried to give you a hard time. And all 18 people at Arista followed you out the door to form your new operation, J Records. And by the end of this, as I understand it, BMG so regretted the way they'd approached this that they became your 50-50 partner and invested $150 million in J Records. So it's just, it's It's very hard to explain rationally, but so let me try to short circuit. Please. The success of Arista was incredible. The jewel that we became, the Rolls Royce that we became, I mean, imagine not just the artists that we were dealing with at Arista, like Whitney, like Aretha, like Dion, like Barry, like Kenny G, like Patti Smith and the Outlaws and was incredible, but we supplemented it. We had supplemented it with LaFace records as R&B began changing so that we had, we were partners with this new wildly successful label that had the TLC and Usher and Outkast and Pink and Tony Braxton. And then right after we did that with LaFace, we did it with Bad Boy Records. So I financed Puffy and believed in him at the age of 21. Listen, when no one else had heard the notorious B.I.G. and seeing the hip-hop revolution coming and the success of Bad Boy was incredible, everything, whether it was Mace or Puffy or Biggie or Faith Evans or 112 total. I mean, that was a giant success. And so none of the success was purchased Mm -hmm. for market share. I felt that it was right to go into country music. And we established Arista Nashville from scratch. We didn't buy a company for market share. We established an with the right leader and Tim Dubois, we had Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn and Brad Paisley and Pam Tillis. And we had a very, very, very successful country label. So all of this was heady, wildly profitable, successful, as I said, a, a Rolls Royce, if you will. And that capping off it was what was labeled in some quarters as quote, Davis's folly was the new signing of Santana. <laughs> and Ahmed Erdogan makes a wonderful joke in the documentary saying, look, if anybody could take a guitarist who doesn't sing in his mid-50s <laughs> and sell 26 million albums, then he has my respect. And so Santana with Supernatural, eight, nine Grammys. So yes, it really is inexplicable that at the very time I'm being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. and I'm getting the Lifetime Award from the Grammys for Lifetime Achievement, riding the high of Whitney's comeback, My Love Is Your Love, and after Ace of Bass and Air Supply and so many artists, the great Eurythmics, the great Annie Lennox and Sarah McLaughlin with Little Fair, and every area with unbelievable depth, What happened was I was earning tens of millions of dollars a year legitimately Mm -hmm. under my phantom equity share. And they felt that I, who had formed Arista, named Arista, would never leave the company. Bertelsmann, the parent company, anytime an executive, and that was a very successful company, anytime any of their top executives reached 60, 
they had to move to a chairmanship or leave their job or consult. So they asked me would I become head of creativity worldwide for all their companies and leave Arista. They didn't think I was too old. Who could? I mean, the success was mm -hmm. at the height of my career. But that's what I enjoyed doing, and I did not want to go into the, and I realized the root of all this was would I accept a position where I did not participate economically the way I had been? The answer was no, <laughs> but there was never an issue that I was too old. Right. That was silly by the press right. or, or ever an issue that I wasn't at the peak of my career. Mm -hmm. So when they realized that they could lose me because competition was there making unbelievable offers to me, they did then set me up with a 50% equity interest in my part in J Records. I could take five platinum or multi-platinum orders with me, so I'm not starting from scratch. There was no limit to the number of executives that could come with me. And there were five new artists in the process where they would never have had an album out. And qualifying in that category was the young Alicia Keys. Yes. So here in establishing Jay, they gave me an unheard amount of $150 million, right. the largest label deal ever before that in history was Interscope at $42 million, so that they gave me the teeth to be an instant major, gave me artists that I could start the label with, and of course it began with Alicia Keys, and as you thoughtfully said, the most emotionally gratifying part of this and any aspect of my career is that I chose the 18 top executives of Arista, all of whom had families, all of whom would have to come to a new company starting the way I described and 18 out of 18 came. And so overnight, the A&R staff, the president, the executive vice president, the press people, the artist development, they all were now J records. And in short order, <laughs> with Buster Rhymes, with O-Town, right. with Alicia, attracting and doing all the American idols, Jay became a major, major, major company, and it was so apparent with its success that just two, three years later, they came to me and they said, look, we're going to give you Arista back. We're going to give you RCA. We're going to give you Jive Records. You're going to be the head of all of BMG North America. And so that was very gratifying very and a wonderful yeah, is there drama along the way? Are there challenges along the way? Is there need for belief and resilience? Yes, so that this is no puppies. This is a dramatic story of four to five decades in the wonderful music business, which I encourage all of your listeners mm -hmm. to feel good about. And in that connection, I have endowed a school at NYU called the Clive Davis Institute for Recorded Music where they get a degree. Music is a wonderful lifetime profession. It's been so fulfilling to me. Yes, it's provided 
some dramatic stories to reveal, but I'm blessed that I found a gift I never knew I had. And I love it, and I'm doing it to this day because uh, I love being involved in it. May I just end with what we call a rapid fire? The first thing that comes to your mind about a few things. But if you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would that song be and why? Oh, wow. That would be a tough sentence to only hear one song. It's like saying, what kid? You've only, <laughs> you have X number of kids and grandkids. Pick out one. I, I can't do that. Okay. I have many memories of great, certainly among them, would be peace of my heart. Yeah. Among them would be blinded by the light. Among them, you know, would be Mandy. It would be the greatest love of all. It would be I will always love you. It would be smooth. There's a potpourri of a few songs That's that would qualify. What do you listen to today? I really take home every week new songs that reach the charts to make sure I don't go over the hill that I'm conversant <laughs> with SZA and DJ Khalid and the new artists of today. I know you like so Chance I the Rapper, right? To, I love Chance the Rapper. I love Kendrick Lamar and Jay-Z. Great respect. Thrilled that he's the icon at this year's Grammy Award. So that's what I listen to. Do you think that American Idol with which you were associated and The Voice and those types of shows, are they good for music? It certainly has been good for music for me. I've recognized that pop music had changed and that Top 40 was not playing any new Manilow. They were not playing Neil Diamond. They were not playing Streisand. So I did, for seven years, do all the albums and everything we did with new material we had hits with and we so that all the early american idols went platinum multi-platinum and carried on with kelly clarkson and carrie underwood and just fantasia and reuben studded we had an incredible good run with that recently there have not been any winners that have joined the top recording artists but we certainly had a good run sure Who's the most talented artist who you signed who did not blow up? And on the flip side, who's the most successful artist who got away? The artist that I was probably the most talented that I thought would make it that did not make it was a group called the Alpha Band. And they were fabulous. They had a writer part of the group that certainly has gone on to individual recognition. They had a electric violinist, great-looking young man named David Mansfield. They had everything, all the ingredients for a long-lasting, super-talented group, the Alpha Band. But T-Bone Burnett, the key member of that group, huh. just didn't, at that time, right. come up with the material for that group. In later years, he sure did. Yes. And he's a wonderful, talented major musician and a part of music's great history. But the Alpha Band, which was his prodigy group, did not make it. The greatest artist that I passed on has a wonderful story at the end of it. It's John Cougar Mellencamp. And when I saw John, I felt he was too close to Bruce Springsteen. And his originality was not as apparent 
as clearly the lifetime music that he's produced, because he's without question among the greatest rock and roll artists in history. And I've always labored, you know, with the fact, who did you pass on? Well, I passed on John Cougar Mellencamp. And then several years, a few years ago, I should say, by coincidence, I'm at a dinner Fionn winner of Rolling Stone. He was being inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the night before that induction, we had a dinner. And by coincidence, my dinner companions that night at one table that I was sitting at, on my left was Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> on his left was John Mellencamp. On his left was Jackson Brown. And on his left was Don Henley. That was our table. And so me being the only non-performer, the subjects subject came up, who of us auditioned for Clive? And Jackson Brown had a story and Springsteen had his story. But I looked at Mellencamp, I said, John, you're the biggest artist I ever passed on. And I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know what it was like. I thought you were too close to Bruce. And here Bruce is sitting between us tonight. Mm -hmm. And he said, let me for the record, let me for history, and certainly for tonight, tell you and Bruce and Jackson and Dawn what happened right before you auditioned me. And what happened was I was in a cover group. I was doing the songs hit songs of other artists in Las Vegas. David Bowie's manager, Tony Visconti, with a big cigar, comes in, sees us, and says to me, you got to go solo. If you go solo, said to me privately, if you go solo, and if you see if you have writing ability, I will manage you. I will get you auditions with the biggest people who signed talent in music. And I did that. And I was exploring my writing for eight weeks when he called me up and he said, I've set up an audition for you, for Clive Davis. And he said, who was my biggest influence at the time? Without question, Bruce, he turned to his right and he said, Bruce, it was you. So there's no question, Clive, when I auditioned for you, my biggest influence was Springsteen. My songs probably were close to his because, you know, I was emerging. I was feeling something for the first time. So that's a great that's relief great. and a great story <laughs> and verifiable. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And it's, uh, it's got to be really exciting for, for you as well as for the rest of us to see such an exciting tribute to you as this documentary. So thanks for doing well, this. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.